welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined by the endurance machine that is coach Trevor Connor. Today, a bit of a special episode. We're talking the science of suffering, the science of Dirty Kanza. As many of you know, I've become something of the VeloNews resident lab rat, guinea pig, crash test dummy, a case study of one, if you will. This past spring, I decided to take a second crack at the grueling, absurd, fantastic, arduous, downright challenging Dirty Kanza 200, a 200 plus mile gravel race across the Flint Hills of Kansas. To say that I am not built for endurance would be like saying Marcel Kill is not built for hill climbs. That's an understatement. So, Coach Connor and I set out to transform me, someone who loves the repeated anaerobic efforts of cyclocross, into someone who could completely empty every cell in his body and finish strong. In essence, we had the goal of turning me into Trevor, an endurance machine, however frightening that might sound. In this episode, we'll first touch upon the history of Dirty Kanza. Fred Dreyer and I had a conversation in a recent Vela News podcast about the phenomenon that is DK, why it's become so popular, how it has grown so rapidly, and so forth. So check that out if you want more. Here, we'll scratch the surface to give you a taste of the atmosphere at this race. I'll also describe my history with the event. Hint, it ain't pretty. Next, we'll discuss the challenge of turning me into a dirty Kansas rider and how we'd go about working my energy systems to prepare. Everything from the nature of the training to the non-physiological side. Strategy, pacing, hydration, and very importantly, fueling. I'll touch upon what it all felt like to do so many miles at or just below my aerobic threshold. You wouldn't believe what this type of riding can do to you. Finally, we'll discuss the race itself. How'd I do? How did it all look on paper in terms of my heart rate, my power output, the TSS score that I put up? What did I do right? What did I do wrong? And how, with even the best laid plans, things can go wildly sideways. So, wrap your head around riding 13, 16, 18 hours or more. Gather your blocks, your bars, your gels, your enduro balls, your waffles, your waffles, whatever you need. Pump up your tires, but not too hard. This is gravel racing after all. Let's make you fast. Well, really, not too fast. Steady is the name of the game. This special edition episode of Fast Talk is sponsored by my sponsors for Dirty Kanza, which are 3T, makers of the Exploro Aero Gravel Bike. If you think aerodynamics are not important for a gravel race, think again. 13 hours, you want to have optimized aerodynamics for saving as many watts as possible. The next sponsor is Envy, makers of the G23 gravel-specific rim and wheel set, wider for the tires that you run at an event like Dirty Kanza or Almanzo or some of these other gravel races. Helps with preventing pinch flatting, a super light wheel, all carbon fiber rim. And finally, Power Tap. I ran a Power Tap disc G3 hub on my Exploro bike. And we couldn't have given you all of this analysis for training and racing if it wasn't for getting the numbers from a power meter. 
And so we have to thank PowerTap for their contribution to this episode. Thanks again to 3T, Envy, and PowerTap for sponsoring this episode of Fast Talk. Let's get back to the show. Trevor, ultimately it is a serious challenge for anybody to undertake, but let's dig in to what it took for you and I, specifically you as the coach and me as the athlete, to prepare myself for this event. Before we go there, just out of interest for me, because you kind of came to me with, hey, I want to do this crazy thing, but you had more of a sense of the, the history. So why Kansas? Why is this the big gravel event? What's, what's the history here? I think that in part, the Midwest just has a, a love affair with their gravel roads and the terrain and the open space. Dirty Kansas, why it has grown to be such an event and such a uh, phenomenon in a way, it has a lot to do with the event itself, of course. It is that distance that is doable, but it's not something you can do really off the couch. It's really akin in many ways to an Ironman triathlon. If you set your mind to it, you can do it. The average amateur rider can do it, but it takes some serious work. It's not something you you can just get off the couch, get on any old bike and do. So there's that aspect of it. It is a big challenge, and it's one of those events that people see as a almost a once-in-a-lifetime sort of thing or a bucket list thing or a next big challenge type of event. So that's part of it. Obviously, the promoters have done, Jim Cummins and Leland have done a really great job of producing an incredible event, stringing together all of these amazing back roads through the Flint Hills of Kansas. So if you're thinking that Kansas is flat, do Dirty Kansas and you'll realize Kansas is not flat, particularly in this part of Kansas. You ended up climbing what, uh, 11,000 feet? Yeah, 10,000 feet of climbing. So ultimately, you're doing, I don't know how many climbs, but it adds up. It's not, there aren't too many climbs that are going to last more than five minutes. And most of them last a lot less than that, but they add up. And so it's it's a different type of climbing. It's this, it's a rolling course that really takes its toll on you, if especially if you don't ride the hills the right way. Those are two big reasons why Dirty Kansas has become so popular. I think also now, for good or for bad, it has become something that is attractive to, quote, racers. And you'll see a lot of either former pros that have recently retired or even a lot of current pros wanting to take this thing on. Jeff Kabush, mountain biker, pro mountain biker that's been racing a long time, still a pro, did it this year. Ted King has won it now twice, both times after he had officially retired from the world tour. Katie Keogh, a cyclocross specialist, won the women's event this year. And the list goes on of people that uh, show up every year to race it. It has become a race. And therefore, it goes out fast. You could describe it as a cyclocross race for the first 50 miles if you wanted to. The second half of the race, or the middle third, let's let's say, is more akin to a road race where there's some some packs and groups working together and some race dynamics. And then by the end of the race, you know, I think a lot of people are in such a unknown place for them 
that it becomes a time trial, not necessarily your traditional time trial against the clock, but a time trial against yourself, against fatigue, against despair, <laughs> against a lot of things. It hurts. It hurts quite a bit out there. It's not a place that a lot of people get to very often. You can crack pretty, pretty hard out there. We should probably tell people your history with the race because you, you've tried it before and how'd that go for you? Well, yeah, I did it for the first time in 2013 and I would say it was kind of on a whim. You know, I didn't, I didn't know what I was getting in for. My friend had done it several times and talked me into it or made it sound like something I needed to do. And I went out there and I <laughs> very stupidly went out really hard and stayed with the lead group for the first 50 miles and then beyond that first aid station and went really deep to about 90 miles in where I proceeded to pull over to the side of the dirt road and start dry heaving because things had caught up to me. And I was in a group of four at that point. So I was feeling <laughs> mentally in a way I was like, wow, I'm really doing well. But it was a horrible strategy. My feeding and drinking and my fueling strategy overall was not dialed in whatsoever. It was amazing that I actually finished that day because if I'm sure if you had had collected data, you would see that the first half of that race or the first 90 miles was probably way above aerobic threshold. And the second half was way below it. <laughs> there was a stark difference between those two halves of the race. So I had some unfinished business in a way and certainly hadn't forgotten the pain, but I wanted to give it another shot because I, you know, as a devotee of science, I wanted to see what real training could do. So basically, Chris and I are very different style riders. Chris is a, a consummate cross rider. He loves a race that's about an hour. He loves the high intensity. I am the guy that just likes to chug along for, for 10, 11 hours uh, at a reasonably hard pace, but doesn't like those big efforts. So Chris came to me and said, hey, Trevor, here's a race that's designed perfectly for you. It's not designed for me at all. So why don't I do it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What was I thinking? So, yeah. Um, so basically, the, the task here was to turn you into me. And that, I, I think we even joked about that when we built your training plan. I basically said, Chris, just do what I do. There's your plan. That's a scary thought, turning me into you. I don't, I don't want to be you, Trevor. <laughs> no offense, but I don't want to be you. <laughs> yeah, nobody does. But that's all right. Oh, come on. <laughs> for, this, for this one time, it, it, it was a benefit for you. It was. It was. But yeah, basically our training plan was to take my training plan and say, Chris, go do this instead of what you typically do. Uh, so we, we had a pretty easy starting point. So I remember after I had done a lactate test at the performance center at the University of Colorado, you looked at my results and analyzed them. And I think your, your exact words were, your anaerobic system is hella good but we needed my aerobic system to be hella good, and it was far from it. That, that was the quote you put in the article. And for the life of me, I'm not sure I ever remember using that word, but apparently I did. I think it was in an email. I'm going to dig that one up and send it back to you because I'll <laughs> okay. never forget it. I do remember when you first came to me after you'd been tested at CU Sports, they told you the same thing. You need to go out and do a whole lot of riding at your aerobic threshold. And you pretty much contacted me a, a week after you started and said, this sucks. This is so slow. <laughs> you hated well, it. Well, 
I, I yeah, I'll tell you. I think my anaerobic engine, if you will, I think the type of riding I did was a a function of having a child and sort of backing off from spending my weekends riding a bike all the time. So it was no surprise to probably either of us that I was built that way. But yeah, after after doing some rides at aerobic threshold, your initial reaction, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, is wow, this is this is slow, or is this really going to have a benefit? And what kind of what kind of benefit am I getting from going like this? It doesn't seem like it's doing much. Right. Um, but I think there's two there's two crucial things to understand. First of all, from my point of view, as the athlete you eventually get to the point where these rides beat you up, not like a set of hard intervals, but the longer you go and the, the more often you do them, you get to a point where you're able to sustain a, you're not going quote slow anymore. You're not going fast. You're definitely not going slow and they, they end up beating you up. This fatigue settles into your body and it, it, it certainly hurts by the end of these rides. And Maybe, maybe from your point of view, Trevor, from the from the physiological point of view, you could explain what is going on inside the the muscle cells when you're doing all these rides at aerobic threshold. Yeah, so I mean, this is a really important concept um, that we've touched on a bunch of times in the podcast, but let's just dive into this a little bit because it was really fundamental to your training for this event. So if we put you into a lab and did a ramp test with you, you're going to see two key physiological breakpoints. Points in your test where you can say something has fundamentally changed here. The the explanation of everything that's changed, what's going on at these two breakpoints, this could be a three-parter podcast. So I'm going to really simplify this. But these two breakpoints are are what are commonly referred to as your anaerobic threshold and your aerobic threshold. So anaerobic threshold, everybody's very familiar with. That's where you time trial. That's what you're approximating with FTP and most of the modern software. It's really the, the highest sustainable level uh, that, you, that you can hold aerobically. The aerobic threshold is much lower. It's usually about 85% of your anaerobic threshold. So the way I like to think of it, to simplify it, is below it, you are using all slow twitch muscle fibers simplification, but let's just go with it. You're using all slow twitch muscle fibers. Your slow twitch muscle fibers are your purely aerobic muscle fibers that effectively never fatigue. So they can just keep going. Again, I'm simplifying, but just go with me here. So below aerobic threshold, as long as you keep yourself hydrated, you keep yourself fueled, you have no neuromuscular issues, you could essentially go indefinitely um, at intensities below that aerobic threshold. That's that's the way to think of it. So getting that aerobic threshold higher is really critical for a long event like this because really what you are fighting in a 13-hour race is fatigue. It doesn't matter if you can go really hard for the first five hours. If you blow up like the first time you did it, you're going to be much slower for the next part of the race if you even get to the end of the race. And when you look at experienced riders doing these sorts of events, you tend to see they, they settle in right around that aerobic threshold. This is where they race these really long events, and they try not to go over. You had an underdeveloped aerobic threshold. So that's why the first couple times you went out and did these rides, you just went, this is painfully slow because you weren't putting out a lot of power. 
your aerobic threshold wasn't very good, so it felt easy. And you have that had that same tendency everybody else has of saying, boy, this is too easy. I can't be getting any gains from this, so I need to go harder. To develop it, you need to do long rides just below that aerobic threshold. And what you saw over the course of the training was that power came up. And then all of a sudden, these rides became fatiguing. And to give you an example, when you're talking about your, your tour-level pros, uh, many of them have an aerobic threshold up in the 300 to 320 watt range. So that's not an easy ride. Maybe we get even nerdier at this point. I, I'm I'm always fascinated by the the changes that are taking place on a cellular level that when you're working right at or right below that aerobic threshold, what's happening to your cells? Are they're getting stronger? Are they becoming more dense? What's happening to the mitochondria in your cells? I mean, are all of these things, I think, are what are the benefits of doing this work. It's not obvious to people like it is if you go out and do hill repeats and you get faster at doing hill repeats pretty quickly. This type of work takes a long time and the changes aren't as obvious. Am I right about that? You're right. And there are also changes that take a really long time. This is the other reason people really like to do a lot of high intensity work because you can see improvements within weeks. To really develop that aerobic threshold, you're, you're measuring it in years. You, you fortunately have had enough years in your legs that your aerobic threshold wasn't too bad. And we were able to raise it a bit, but not what we could have done if we had said, let's do Dirty Kanza in four years. And part of that is a lot of these changes are more structural in nature. Uh, so some of the, basically what you're trying to do is build your ability to produce power purely aerobically. So again, mostly slow twitch muscle fibers with some uh, what are called your 2A fast twitch muscle fibers, which can work aerobically. So to help them function better, some of the adaptations you're seeing are strengthening of the, the slow twitch muscle fibers. So each one can produce more power improved capillary density so you can get better oxygen flow to these muscle fibers. Another important aspect is, is managing lactate once you do start recruiting some of those 2A fibers, once you go a little bit over that aerobic threshold, and improving your ability to clear lactate, which is the, developing something called your, your MCT1 transporters, which we've covered in the past. There's also just improving your what's called your central conditioning. So your heart's ability to deliver blood. So that's things like increasing the size of your left ventricle so you can pump more blood per beat. A lot of adaptation. So as I was saying before, to really cover everything that's happening in the body, this could be a couple podcasts on its own. Right. And we started my training maybe March, late February. And uh, so I didn't quit my job and do base miles and ride at aerobic threshold for a year. There was no way I could do that. I didn't have the time. I have a wonderful wife that allowed me to train a lot and daughter, I should mention that, allowed me to train quite a bit more than I have in, in years past, but it still, it still wasn't a lot of time. And I think it's interesting that we had to sometimes substitute some of these long rides with what you like to call, I think, poor man's sustainability work. Right. Some some threshold hill repeat, anaerobic threshold hill repeats and things like that. Maybe maybe you could explain how that uh, that how that works. And, and I, I imagine a lot of people out there would be in the same boat if they were looking to do an event like this. Well, let's yeah, let's let's address that with an addendum that 
if you're going to do something like Dirty Kansan, you don't have the time to, to ride more than four hours and you're, you're prepped for the race, don't do the race. It's going to be too much <laughs> yeah. of a shock to your body. And also bear in mind, if somebody had come to me uh, saying they had similar sort of work constraints and life constraints that you had, and they were brand new to cycling and said, I want to do Dirty Kansas, I would say, great. How does 2020 sound? Uh, <laughs> you, you need time to yeah, build up right. to this. We took this on knowing that you are somebody with, with probably two decades in your legs, and you do have good endurance. And you and I have gone out for enough epic seven-hour rides that I knew you know, you're you're standing somewhere between second and third base. You're not you're not up the bat. Um, right, know. right. So we're not. You know, we we did some great work with you, but we weren't performing miracles here. You you can't do miracles in four months. But one of the nice things about your two thresholds is they do tend to move together. You improve one, you often see improvements in the other. That's some of the reason a lot of top pros like to do a lot of this aerobic threshold work because it doesn't beat them up as badly, but you can see improvements in that the, the power that they time trial at. It's complementary work. So we did a lot of threshold work with you. And as we said in the article, even though we were having you do 10-minute hill repeats, the objective here wasn't to improve your 10-minute power. There was no point in this race where your ability to go up a 10-minute climb was going to decide your performance or not. So it was, it was exactly what you said. It was kind of that poor man's uh, sustainability work where we said we have limited time. So you had a 10-minute climb, and we had you repeat it five or six times. But the trick here was whatever your time up that climb was the first time up, that needed to be your time every single time up that climb. It was basically fighting fatigue is the way to think of it. We wanted you to be just as strong on the last one when you weren't as fresh as you were on the first one. Teaching your body to say, now that you're fatigued, continue to put that power out. You mentioned the term sustainability. That was the other side of what we were really trying to work with you. And when you talk with pros that do big grand tours, that do big events, they talk about repeatability and sustainability more than they talk about what's my five-minute power, what's my 20-minute power, what's my one-hour power, because that's always the question in races. It's not how hard can you do five minutes. It's how hard can you do five minutes 10 times in a row or at the end of a five-hour race. So we wanted to improve your repeatability, improve your ability to sustain your power over that 13 hours that we knew you were going to be racing. I think one of the other things to mention here is even if you don't have a, a ton of time, I think that carving out a few times in your prep to do what you like to call camps or fatigue blocks is a pretty critical component to training for something like this. And I think it also has to do with improving sustainability and repeatability. And those fatigue blocks are really a key week where you're going to do a lot of riding, some quality work, some quantity, and get to a point at the end of the week where you're not overtrained, but you're nearing that, that breaking point. Yeah, so the, I think the term for it that you're looking for is, is they call it functional overreaching. Right. So some people see it as a continuum. You go from overreaching to overtrained to burned out. Uh, there has been some argument that actually overreach and burnout are two completely different things that just look similar. But for argument's sake, that's kind of your progression. And, and 
there's what's called functional overreaching, and then there's non-functional overreaching, which is really more just overtraining. And functional overreaching is great. And we want that, especially when you're working that sustainability. Because like you said, sustainability is about your ability to keep putting out power when you're fatigued. So you need to train in a fatigued state. We just need to control it so you never bump over into to being overtrained. Great way to do that is let's just take four days where we beat you up. And instead of saying on the last day, oh, just go out and ride easy, we'd have you go out and do a six-hour ride and have you time trial some climbs and try to do some hard high power work when your body's saying, I want to be home in bed right now. Leave me alone. <laughs> and I got to, I got to chime in here. We did, you happened to be in town, came down from Canada. You were not acclimated at all. We went out, we did a camp like this. We did a fatigue block like this. Oh, worst and day the of last my life. Day, the last day was worst day of my hour, life. <laughs> seven hour ride. You know, Seven-hour rides with Trevor previously, I was really hurting by the end of them, and he was fresh as a daisy. I think the everything had changed. You know, The roles were reversed, and by the end, I wouldn't say I was fresh as a daisy, but we went hard on two or three big climbs in Boulder, and I dropped you hard, and it brought a big smile to my face, I and, must say. Uh, a real tear to my eye. <laughs> Well, just just well, to clarify, well, we, we had we had this great detente going where if you and I time trialed up a 20 minute climb fresh, you would always kill me. But I would get my revenge if we'd go out for a six hour ride. I knew the last two hours of that ride, I was going to make you suffer. That's right. You, you took away my or I guess I coached out of you my advantage. Exactly. You got to be careful what you do to me because I'll come out and hurt you now in, in pretty much every every uh, aspect. We're sitting there at the six-hour mark, and you're I was so torn because we're going up Flagstaff. You're riding away from me. And the, the one side, I'm like, this sucks. This is where I hurt Chris, and now he's hurting me. But at the same time, I'm like, but I'm his coach, so I need to be happy because this yeah, is what exactly. we were trying to do. You were, you were in a weird place that day. It, it was on a personal level. Yeah, my just about my worst day. As a coach, it was great. Personal level, worst <laughs> the day of my worst life. Day. <laughs> so, Come on. But yes, this is what was key. This is what we're this is when we're talking about that sustainability, this is how you do it. There's a big difference between going and time trying to climb when you're fresh. And for a rider like you who's got a big anaerobic engine. If you go on time trial, a climb like Flagstaff, fresh, you're going to pull in a lot of that anaerobic metabolism. So this is when we were talking about energy systems, this is your big energy system. You're going to be pulling in a lot of that to get yourself up Flagstaff. We don't want that because when you're doing dirty Kanza, you're pretty quickly going to deplete a lot of that anaerobic energy and you're going to have to really rely on your aerobic system. So we wanted to beat you up. We wanted to get you into that fatigue state and now say, go rely on a different energy system. Go rely on that aerobic system and still figure out how to go hard. So Trevor, one thing that people out there might have a question about is how do you actually measure someone's improvements in sustainability or their ability to maintain homeostasis? That it's not a number like your FTP is going up. How do you get an indication of improvements in that area? It's a tricky one. As you pointed out, a lot of these other, a lot of your energy systems are very easy to measure. You, you want to see if your, your anaerobic threshold's improving. You look at your 20 minute or one hour power. 
even your aerobic threshold, I tended to use your 2.5 hour power. Sustainability is tougher uh, and you have to use indirect measures. One of my favorites is cardiac drift, which is basically if you rode for, say, six hours at 200 watts, you might start the ride at 140 beats per minute, but by the end of the ride, you could be 155, 160 beats per minute. Your heart rate's going to go up. And that is the definition of cardiac drift. One of the things that causes it is dehydration. When I see somebody's out on a ride on a hot day and you see kind of an extreme cardiac drift, yeah, I look at dehydration. But another big cause is if you think about those slow twitch muscle fibers, I said that they can go indefinitely. That was a simplification. They do fatigue. They get damaged. You get micro tear and you get issues that prevent the slow twitch muscle fibers from being able to contract as strongly as they could at the beginning of the ride. So what ends up happening is to produce that 200 watts, you have to recruit a few more muscle fibers to do it. You also, as you get fatigued, you start cycling through more and more muscle fibers to give ones that have been working for a while a break. The net result is you're recruiting more muscle fibers and that stimulates your heart to beat faster. So when I see somebody go out and do a six-hour ride and there isn't a dehydration issue and you see a lot of cardiac drift, what I'm going to point towards is you are fatiguing. You're seeing muscle damage. Your sustainability is not there. So that was something that we really tried to work on with you. And we saw it. your first couple aerobic threshold rides, even though you were complaining that they were way too easy, There's a in, in training peaks, there's a, a measure called... Um, aerobic decoupling, which is their estimate of cardiac drift. And you were seeing 30, 40%, which is big. So we wanted to bring that down. And over the course of our, our three, four months of training, it really came down. And amazingly at Dirty Kanza, your aerobic decoupling was 4%. Yeah. I'm, I'm astounded by that. I, it, it just, just, you know, learning all about cardiac drift as we were going through this process and hearing these big numbers at the start of the training and like, wow, that, that doesn't, you know, not knowing all that much about it, it still sounded like a big number, but to then do a 13 hour ride much longer than any of our other rides and have it only be 4%. I was very impressed by that. So. Yeah. I think there were some artifacts in there. I find it hard to believe in a 13 hour ride, you're only going to be 4%, but you know, had I seen now you're eight, knocking me down. I was all excited and now you're just Well, you just, should be excited, but I think even <laughs> I, I you know, I would have put you maybe closer to eight, ten percent is what I was expecting, and, and that would have been amazing. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other things that uh happened in the course of my training was that I ended up going to Almanzo, a hundred mile gravel race. Got it really excited, was up at the front of that race. And, you know, it's half the distance of Dirty Kanza. It was coming um, not too long after we had done this fatigue block. And I was, it was fresh in my mind that I had dropped Trevor. So I was like, wow, I, I can, I'm going to go into Almanzo doing really well. And I have the, the capabilities to do really well. And I got maybe, you know, overly excited. And, and it came down to the last 30 miles of the race or maybe even less. And it got hilly and I got excited. It was my, sort of my preferred terrain and went really hard and ended up cracking myself. And I tell this story because this is this is another a place where I think Trevor would point out 
those are the types of events where as a coach you're like oh i'm really sorry chris that you had a bad race and you cracked and at the same time they're like yes i'm glad he cracked because it wasn't his target race and he learned a good lesson that if you go too hard for too long you're going to crack yourself and you're going to pay the price and so i think secretly he was smiling when i had this yeah i i was i was conflicted again i think we i think i went through a lot of conflicted moments with our, our training you uh i was conflicted with this event because it wasn't your target event it was a tune-up and i felt bad for you because you were really dejected because you had that moment where you were away with the the guy who won the race and uh looking at at least second place possibly winning the race right before you cracked uh right. that got the better of you and and made you watch your intensity less and and go above yourself I was happy about it because this wasn't the target race. Dirty Kansas was the target race, and this was going to be fresh in your mind. And I knew going into Dirty Kansas, if let's say you tried to hang on with Ted King and you were looking down and seeing this huge power, high heart rates, you would remember that race two weeks before and go, yeah, I can't do this. I got to let them go. I got to go my own pace because... I blew up at the five-hour mark in that previous event. If I blow up in the five-hour mark here, I'm done. Exactly. Yep, learned the lesson the hard way, you could say, but it's a great lesson to, to have in the back of my mind, just like you said, and it helped keep things much steadier on Dirty Kansas Day. So one, one thing we haven't really spoken about that was also a critical part of my training was the, the nutrition component and and understanding how to fuel and training my gut a little bit to accept a bit more so that I didn't suffer as much GI distress. We could talk with that could be a podcast in itself or maybe multiple podcasts. And I guess the, the, some of the lessons were you have to train that just like you have to train your body. You have to train your gut. You have to train your, your uh, digestive system to understand what it's like to fuel that much yeah, I have to admit, when you and I were doing those two long rides in Boulder during your, your final fatigue block, uh, I felt a little bit like your mother because I was, what, constantly every 20 minutes, Chris, did you, you eat something? Did you drink? It was something you had to train yourself to do. It's really actually easy in an event like this to forget to drink, to forget to fuel, and by the time you remember, you're, you have yourself in trouble. So you literally had to, for several training rides, practice eating more frequently, eating at the sort of pacing that you had, had identified with CU Sports uh, was what you needed to be eating and drinking per hour during the event. Yeah. I didn't mind that you were being my mom, Trevor. It was something necessary for, for me to prepare. We had I had gone into uh, the performance center at the University of Colorado, and I had done a metabolic test as well in, in my preparation for Dirty Kansas. And that helps someone identify how many calories they're going to need given the pace that they're going to be riding at for an event, an event of this length. So that's a really simple take on the process. They come up with a number of, sorry, the, the number of calories that you're burning per hour at a given pace. Then, of course, you have to consider how much you're storing in your body in different places, whether it's your liver or your muscles. And then finally they can compute, oh, you have this much in your body. You're going to burn this much 
because we know that from from what the the data from the metabolic test and give you basically the you need to consume 392 calories per hour if you maintain that given pace and that's what they're able to do when you do a metabolic test so the trick with this is you need to make sure you were doing it. And it's very easy, even in an event like this, to forget. A lot of riders go into dirty Kanza, forget to eat very much or drink very much for the first four or five hours. And by the time they realize they're, they're struggling, uh, they're so far behind the game, there's nothing they can do. So our goal with your fueling strategy was we needed to keep you in balance for as long as we could. We knew the last few hours of the, the event, you were going to be struggling. You probably weren't going to be able to get much food down. You're probably going to start having digestive issues. So we need to get as much in you um, in that first seven, eight, nine, ten hours as we could so that your body had something to work with. So we came up with literally a schedule and had you practice it on your long rides. Yeah, there's there's so many factors. There's not only the number of calories that you need to consume, but there's the way in which you can consume it, whether it's liquid form or solid form, gels, blocks, bars, homemade stuff, packaged stuff. You have to practice all of those things because not everybody can deal with consuming a bottle with 200 or 300 calories in it. Other people really like having solid food. Some people can sustain themselves on gels. You just have to practice that. And I think everybody probably gets to a point where there's taste fatigue and then you need to figure out which which types of things you can maybe switch to at that point in the race nine ten hours in where you're just like i cannot eat anything else aha i have this waffle or i have this whatever that just sort of allows you to consume something even though you're the last thing you want to do is shove more sugar into your mouth so a lot of stuff to practice yeah. And I, th- I think a lot of people, when they hear us saying we, we came up with a nutrition strategy, are thinking we found the perfect foods, we found the perfect drink mixes, and had this very, very scientific, very, very detailed approach to the nutrition. You're not going to be thinking about that out there. It's going to be a struggle just to get the food in. So really, we were focusing on foods that you had found during your training ride that you could digest, that you liked, that you were willing to eat or drink. And that was preferable to the perfect scientific mix that you go, this tastes awful. And the idea of eating or drinking this for 13 hours is, would, would kill me. Yep, exactly. Yeah, you know, I kept it relatively simple. I had mostly uh, scratch gummies and scratch in my bottles with some noon in my bottles. I had some Enduro balls, which are homemade. They're from a book called Rocket Fuel. And they're, I think they're great. They're, I think they're date based. Anyways, they just, I found them. I like the taste. They seem to work for me. And yeah, the gummies, just straight up gummy bears. I know uh, Trevor is, um, he's invested in the corporation that uh, produces Swedish fish because he consumes mass quantities of them on his rides. You got to try things and figure out what works for you. Yep. But you have to look at it from the perspective of when you're nine hours into this event and you're struggling and you're forcing food down, what are you going to be willing to take down? What can you tolerate? And you'll be, you, you might be a little surprised what that can be. <laughs> I, I will say that on the last aid station, 
150 miles into the race. I was all alone at that point, just by happenstance. I got to that aid station and I saw a bag of chips and a ginger beer in a cooler. And not going to lie, I ate it. I loved it. It was like a bit of paradise out there. Probably not the best thing to consume, but if you end up doing Dirty Kanza, have some things that you might crave some salty stuff out there and have it in your aid station at uh, at some point so you can go to it and it will give you a mental boost. Maybe it won't give you a physical boost, honestly, but give you that mental boost and a nice, refreshing, cold drink. Oh, man, you wouldn't believe how, how good it feels to have that. It'll reinvigorate you for the next 50 miles of headwinds and dirt. <laughs> We're we're painting such a beautiful picture of this race. Nobody's going to do it again. <laughs> That's not true. There's a lot of crazy people out there that are going to want to do this even more because of how bad it sounds. It is an epic experience. Trevor, you got to do it next year. You're built for it. Well, this is the thing. Like This just sounds like fun for me. This isn't a challenge. It's like, what do you want to do on a Saturday afternoon? Let's go for a 13-hour ride. I'm all <laughs> <Okay>. for that. <laughs> You might have to get yourself slightly wider tires. Yeah. You don't think I can do it on my 23Cs? No, I don't think so. So, Chris, I think the one place where you and I would not see eye to eye on this particular event is in the gear. If I was doing this, I would probably be doing it on my $600 2008 cross bike with the rear cantilever brake still disconnected and, and my completely bald tires and tell you I'm just fine. I'm guessing that wasn't your mindset. Absolutely not. <laughs> Trevor, you are a retro grouch to the core. I, on the other hand, work for News and I had some glorious sponsors that helped me get through this event. 3T, makers of their Exploro aero gravel bike. Envy, makers of the G23 carbon wheels, gravel specific and PowerTap and their G3 Power Meter Hub all came on board to sponsor my efforts at Dirty Kanza and help bring you this episode of Bastock. Got to say in my defense, the, the, the last pro cross race I ever did on that bike, the guy who was measuring the width of the tires walked towards me, looked at my tires, laughed, and didn't even bother to measure them. <laughs> I don't doubt it. Okay, back to the show. So I think if we're painting a picture of the training here, what you should be hearing is sustainability or even better, if I want to put it in scientific terms, this is about your body's ability to maintain homeostasis. Once you lose homeostasis, you, which means your body gets out of balance, that's when you get in trouble in an event like this. And the tricks to this are, we talked a lot about Chris's training, which is training that sustainability, that repeatability, that ability to put out power fatigued. That was the sort of training work we did. But it goes beyond that. We just talked about his nutrition strategy to make sure that he had enough fuel throughout the event to make sure he was sufficiently hydrated. The last element of this is you want to throw as little at your body that it is unfamiliar with as possible during the event. And this is a mistake a lot of people make. They go, there's a big event. I haven't done something like this before. So I'm going to eat things I've never eaten before. I'm going to ride a different bike that I haven't ridden on, except for maybe once right before the event. These are the sort of things that can also get you in trouble. Anything that Chris was going to do in the race for the three weeks leading up to the race, 
he was practicing them. So he was riding the bike in the right setup for weeks before the event. He was practicing the nutrition strategy for weeks before the event. Everything was practiced so that it was familiar to his body and it wasn't going to throw off homeostasis. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You you have to you have to trust the process for one thing. You also you can't cram for an event like this in the last 3 weeks whether it's training or getting new gear or trying new foods. You you really ideally need to figure all that stuff out beforehand, dial it in and then just get in a rhythm of using that food and eating it at a at a regular intervals and have your bike dialed in with the setup you're going to run, with the tires you're going to use, with the aero bars that you might use, or the, in my case, one aero bar that you were going to use. <laughs> but if you look at, you know, in the article, we put up a graph of your weekly training stress. And if you look, our last big build block ended four weeks before the event. The three weeks leading up to the event was really about just maintaining form and practicing everything equipment, food, everything, doing a practice race. So no, we were not really training in those last three weeks. We were just maintaining. Which is a good pitch to uh, our uh, podcast a few episodes ago on peaking and the taper process. So check that one out. Well, should we jump into the race itself and and talk about how it went and and, uh, some of the other things that you noticed during the race? Absolutely. Well, all this talk about all this training, the best laid plans, as you say. We get to the start line in Emporia, Kansas, and thunderstorms and dawn, and everybody's shivering at the start line because it's a little chilly. And, you know, the, the first time I did Dirty Cans, I remembered it going out really fast and thinking, my God, this is silly. We, we cannot possibly maintain this. And lo and behold, we couldn't. I certainly couldn't. The winner that day did, (laughs) astoundingly. From my point of view, it actually felt like it was not as fast and not as uh, aggressive. My data tells a slightly different story. I was certainly going above the aerobic threshold that I was trying to maintain. And that, you know, that all comes to bear when the group is doing one thing and your your coach and your plan tells you to do another thing sometimes you have to you have to break those rules a little bit to to stay with the group to benefit from all those from the aerodynamics of staying with the pack and and all those things but well this was the the, the trickiest part of the race because yeah it was still a race we talk about the best way to pace yourself is to do the 13 hours at aerobic threshold but if that means you're getting popped and you're by yourself five minutes off the line, that's not a good place to be either. So it was right. that balance between we knew you needed to try to stay with the, the lead group or find a smaller group that you could ride with, especially in the winds on the flatter stretches, finding a big guy for you to sit on because you are smaller was going to be really key for you in the race. And that meant you couldn't pace yourself quite the way we would ideally have you pace yourself if you were just doing this ride by yourself. Right. Well, you know, all that was was so, somewhat shattered, I guess, in maybe good ways, maybe bad ways. But about an hour into the race, I had a, I cut a sidewall on my tire. And that really changed the the entire race for me. Here I was thinking, oh, you know, maybe I'll 
hang with that front group as long as I can and, and, and use them as much as I can and then eventually settle in, find that group, do all that thing, do all those things that we, Trevor and I had talked about. But, oh man, it was such an, it was a nasty sidewall cut and I tried plugging it a couple times and it didn't work. And eventually, well, I broke my pump. Luckily, a friend of mine flatted in virtually the same exact spot. We ended up both having to put tubes in our tire, in our tires and I borrowed his pump and that really changed the face of the of the race entirely and it became a a different sort of event. So I lost probably 20 minutes. I'm I'm not not proud of that fact, but it took took me about 20 minutes to figure out this issue on the side of the road as hundreds if not thousands of people passed me by because the the racers in the 100-mile event start right behind the 200-mile event and they were passing me. I know this because I knew somebody in that race and they they came up beside me as I after I had gotten onto the course and they were like, "Hey Chris, what happened?" And I told them the story very quickly and told them how my pump had broken and they they gave me the pump which was incredible. It was a big boost because I thought there's a long way to go. If I get a flat again, I'm totally stranded if I need a pump. So they gave me the pump and off I went. Then it was about maintaining a pace and making a judgment call on what I could do to try to gain back some time, but not go too deep. Trevor, why don't you talk a little bit more about what it looked like on paper when you when you saw my data after the race? Well, this is one of the unfortunate. This this is why flats and races really suck because then you get into the the what ifs, and there's definitely some very interesting what ifs here. That you you finished what 65th place, I believe it was. Something like that, yeah. But if you look at the file, you can see that you were stopped for 20 minutes with the flat tire. And you look at the finishing results, and the difference between your 65th and 35th place was 20 minutes. And there was a a relatively big group that all finished within a couple minutes of one another up in that kind of 30s and 40s placing. That was probably the group that you fell out of when you, you flatted. And you can see the evidence that that you would have been with them if not possibly been able to to ride away from them later in the race. So, you know, it's unfortunate that we won't ever fully be able to see what you could have done, but at the very least we can say you were on the side of the road with a flat for 20 minutes and you were 20 minutes down from from 35th place. Right. You go back and forth with your analysis of what could have happened and on one hand, you think, "Oh man, I lost 20 minutes there and if I had only, if that hadn't happened, I would have stayed with that group. Or the the question is, do you stay with leaders a little too long because you get excited and maybe you get a little uh, too confident in your abilities and you go go over that line a bit too much and then you end up cracking? On the other hand, I lost 20 minutes, so then I had to sort of make this judgment call about how hard I could go and did I end up going a little too hard solo because I was excited and the adrenaline was pumping and I was trying to gain back time, ended up hurting myself in the long run too. I'll never know. And So the one thing that we can say is we had talked about at some point you need to be pacing yourself. And that just simply happened much sooner than we had planned because of the flat, though you were riding with Ben Delaney, who also flatted for a bit, and he was driving a pretty good pace. So... We do know that you were able to spend most of the race really focusing on 
being in that right range to be able to get to the finish of the race without blowing up. So that that's one thing we can say for certain. Some of the things that amaze me is we talked before the race saying, yeah, it's going to be hard off the gun. You need to do some some efforts. You're going to need to be above aerobic threshold, get into that. Some people call it sweet spot. Some people call it no man's land. Some people call it tempo pacing. But basically, we knew you could spend an hour or two there, but then you were going to need to back down. Amazingly, when we look at your heart rate profile, you were up in that sweet spot tempo range for about six hours. Yeah. And didn't blow up. You got to the first feed zone at that point, and it's amazing. You can see that little drop, and then as soon as you left the feed zone, that's where you finally said, okay, this is an aerobic threshold ride. I'm going aerobic threshold, and your heart rate sat perfectly in that aerobic threshold range all the way to the next feed zone, which was at about 10 hours. You then left that feed zone, tried to get back up to aerobic threshold, but you can see that's when you started to really struggle. And you dropped into what most people would call zone one riding, which was basically now you were just trying to get yourself to the finish. But you still found it in you in the last 30 minutes of the race to actually go back up into that sweet spot, no man's land. Yeah. So that last that last section, I was that's after I had my my bag of chips and my ginger beer, among other things. And uh, unfortunately, was was by myself. I left the the aid station by myself. And that's where the mental game begins. Uh, it's a mental game, of course, the, the mo- much of the time, but especially those la- that last segment, and especially when you're by yourself. And that was an unfortunate part of it. But the last 30 minutes, what you're seeing on paper is a group of maybe four or five guys came up behind me. And I thought, man, this is the train I need to board. And I got on there and they were going as a group faster than I was solo. And I was, I was pretty wrecked at hour 12 and a half. So I latched onto that. And, um, that was a, a beautiful thing to, to be able to do at the, the very end of the race and pick it up. It gives you it seeing people to work with and being able to work with them gives you a, a surge of, of something that helps you pick up the pace. And that's what you're seeing. And this is also why I'm saying with your cardiac drift, there was probably, it's not quite accurate, that 4%, or as a matter of fact, I'm I'm certain, Uh, simply because in that last 30 minutes, your power was going back up into that uh, tempo, sweet spot type range, but your heart rate didn't, which shows that you were experiencing some form of, of neurological fatigue by the end of this ride that was keeping your heart rate depressed. And so that would offset some of the the natural cardiac drift you you would experience. That being said, and this is in the article, you look at your your heat map for the power and it's a really nice heat map. You you don't ever see a big explosion, you see a decline as you would expect over 13 hours, but uh, a very reasonable decline. So you there is no evidence to me anywhere that you blew up in this race. You actually seem to pace it very well. And were able to get yourself to the end. And yeah, you were struggling in those last few hours, but everybody was struggling in those last few hours. Well, maybe right. not Ted King, but and 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 uh, if you flash back to that Bella News podcast where Fred had interviewed a bunch of people at the, the finish line, you heard some pretty horrific stories of people having to pull over and sit or nap on the side of the road, and people that just completely cracked themselves. And thankfully, I did not experience that. And that has 
everything to do in a way to relatively good pacing throughout a fueling strategy that I stuck to almost the entire time. I mean, obviously there are some patches in there where I, the, the, the stomach didn't feel great, but never had to pull over and never got sick. None of those things. So yeah, it, all of the things that we practice in training helped me accomplish a good result. Obviously I'd like it to have been better if I didn't have the flat, it would have been, but thanks to the training, thanks to the science, it went a lot better than it did in 2013. No, I just got to turn you back into a cross rider so I can beat you on six-hour rides again. <laughs> you know what? I'm happy for you to do that to me because I'm looking forward to cross season. Cross Good. is coming. Hashtag cross is coming. I was going to say, now we got to figure out the uh, the next thing we're going to torture ourselves with. Well, yeah, I've been thinking about that. If anybody out there has any ideas about what they'd like to see me do or Trevor do and the science behind it, send us an email at fasttalk at com fasttalk at velnews.com. Tell me, tell Trevor what sort of torture I should do next. And for those who are into the numbers, my finishing time was 13 hours and eight minutes, roughly. Average speed, 15.7 miles per hour. I think Ted King's was over 19 miles per he hour. He was just shy of 20. Mind. Yeah. Elevation gain was 10,079 feet. My training stress score, which is a training peak's indication of how hard, how intense, how stressful the, the ride was, was 655. Try doing that on a weekend ride. 655 is something that I don't, I wouldn't say any Tour de France stage, any rider would have that big a score on, right? Generally, anything over 400 is considered extreme. And I know lots of people <laughs> yeah. who have never there seen a go, ride people. over 400. So yeah. You know, my guess is bigger stages at the tour are going to be over 400 for for those riders. Uh, most of the stages at the tour, they're going to be more in the, for those guys. Well, let's clarify: for any of us going and doing one of those stages at the tour is going to be 600. But for one of those tour guys, they're probably closer to 300, 325 would be my guess for a lot of the stages. Yeah, maybe not the best comparison, but still, uh, 655, a, a gigantic number. Kilojoules, 7,801, and I lost nine pounds, which, I don't know, Trevor, you said that that was not a, a massive quantity. It sounds like a big amount. I, so I started at 140 pounds. By the end of the race, I was 131. It's a big amount, but it's what I would expect for an event like this in the heat that you were in. Yeah. They're the numbers. Dirty Kanza by the numbers. I think the other number that's worth bringing up for anybody who wants to attempt this event is... 80% of your time was below aerobic threshold. It was in what people would consider base training type intensities. So mm. this is not a high intensity race. You do not do this event at the sort of pace you would do the weekend three-hour race at. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at velonews.com. If you have a crazy idea about how Chris can hurt himself next, email us at fasttalk at velonews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between velonews and Co Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.